Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 191, Libya minus one. Today, we explore an incident in the reign of Seti I. The king of Egypt and his army go forth into the west, there to wage war, take prisoners, and plunder all they can. It is an episode of military conquest, enslavement, and offerings to the great gods. The year was 1298 BCE, approximately. Regnal year 6, under the majesty of King Men Ma'at-Ra. Seti I, the ruler of Egypt, was now half a decade into his reign. Previously, the king had led numerous campaigns and wars in the northern regions of Canaan and Syria. He had attacked, subjugated, and battled against numerous foes, and every time he had returned in glorious victory. At least, that is the image we get from Seti's royal monuments. The great temple of Karnak in the modern city of Luxor contains a full suite of Seti's war reliefs. Here, on the outer walls of the king's hypostyle hall, we find many scenes of the pharaoh going to battle. Most of these images seem to focus on the north, the series of campaigns that King Seti led into the lands of Sinai, Canaan, Lebanon, and Syria. Across the wall at Karnak, most of Seti's images deal with this region. But among those scenes, there is one geographic outlier, a scene in which Seti does not go north, but rather wages war in the west. Seti's Libyan war is a strange interlude in his Karnak war reliefs. It's the only scene out of all the surviving areas that shows a campaign somewhere other than the north. Amidst all his glorious conquests, Seti suddenly makes a detour to attack the Libyans. The war itself is depicted in four major scenes, showing Seti attacking the Libyans, defeating their chieftains, gathering up prisoners, and then presenting his victory to the gods. It is a whirlwind of military and religious imagery. The scene itself is large and quite elaborate, and before we begin, I should note, if you want to see these images, and all of Seti's war reliefs, you can find a study by the University of Chicago, which is available free on their website. I'll put a link in the episode description, should you wish to follow along. Seti's Libyan war stands out from his other images in certain key respects. As I noted, it's the only scene not dealing with a northern battle or campaign. Additionally, it's one of the scenes that does not include any specific date or definitive point of reference. Seti's attack on Libya could technically have happened any time during his reign, and different scholars have placed it around different points in the story. For my chronology, I am following the record of Professor Anthony Spallinger, who is the foremost expert on Egyptian warfare and the history of pharaonic campaigns. In 1979, Spallinger published a study of Seti's war reliefs, and made a reconstruction of their most likely historical sequence. In his account, the attack on Libya probably took place somewhere around year 6. That would put this war approximately in 1298 BCE, at least in my version of the ancient chronology. Other scholars may give different dates for this particular event, which is perfectly legitimate. 
but I am following Spallinger, so I'm going with year 6. Putting aside the date, the rough historical context for this war is even harder to pin down. As we will see later in the episode, historians and archaeologists really don't know much about the ancient Libyans. In fact, most of what we do know comes from Egyptian sources, sources like the battle reliefs of King Seti I. As a result, our information is extremely one-sided, and paints a very negative picture of these ancient peoples. So, as always, take Seti's references and images with a grain of salt. The Egyptian pharaohs have their own agenda and ideas which they are pursuing when they create these monuments. The campaign into Libya is artistically and historically complicated, but it is also fascinating, and an excellent example of Egyptian ideology and their relationships with the outside world. Now then, enough introduction. Let us begin the War of Seti I in the western lands of Libya. Seti's images of the Libyan war begin like that. We find the king upon his chariot, charging into battle. The enemy tumble about, thrown down by the pharaoh's onslaught. The king is a skilled warrior. He has tied the chariot reins around his waist, and with his free hands, he wields a kopesh sword and a bow and arrow simultaneously. The war cart bounces on the terrain, but Seti has taken precautions. From the handle of his kopesh sword, there is a strap of leather which is tied around his wrist, keeping the blade close to him should it fall from his hand. On his back, he carries a quiver, which is now empty of arrows, but another quiver is attached to the body of the chariot, and this one is still full. The king has clearly fired at least one volley of arrows, and now he uses his bow as a melee weapon. The king reaches out, catching a Libyan chieftain in the string of his bow, and ensnaring him like a deer or gazelle. From the get-go, the scene conveys an image of unstoppable force, as the king, larger than life and towering over his enemies, rides forward into the melee, driving all before him. Naturally, the enemy themselves are incapable of withstanding the attack. The Libyans tumble over one another, forming a chaotic mass as the horses and the war-cart of Seti drive over the top of them. The Libyan chieftain, the largest figure in their group, stands in front of Seti's horses, where he has been caught by the pharaoh's bow. He raises his arms begging for mercy, but the king is showing none. Today, the scene has lost almost all its colour, but tiny traces do survive, and archaeologists can compare these images with other ones that are known from tombs and artefacts. In one reconstruction by the British Museum, we have a brightly painted version of the scene. Here, the Libyans are coloured yellow, they wear long cloaks which are knotted around the neck, and they sport the characteristic feather in their hair. Each man has a side lock of hair running down the side of his head, and a distinctive sheath made of leather which wraps around his penis. They carry bows and arrows and short swords. But although they are well armed and finely dressed, these Libyans are no match for the power of the pharaoh. Again, most of the colour has disappeared, worn away by time and the elements. But tiny traces do survive, and scholars from the University of Chicago have published detailed studies of Seti's war reliefs, including the scraps of colour that remain. In their description, the battle was once brightly lit 
with a green border and a sky of deep blue. The flesh tones of Seti and his horses were red, as were the animal's hooves. In their description, the Libyans themselves also had reddish skin, which differs from the British Museum reconstruction. The clothing of the Libyans was a mixture of blue and yellow stripes, greens, blue tips, and red fringes. Seti's horses wore blankets on their back, with blue and green around the neck. The king himself wore a red shirt, but this was later changed to green. Seti's bracelets, armlets, and collar were blue, just like his crown, and the quivers for his bow and arrow were green with a blue border. The bow itself was yellow, with green at the middle and the ends, and the bowstring was red, as were the reins of his horses. So, while today the scene has faded to the dull yellow of sandstone, once upon a time it was bright and vibrant, with colours of fertility, the green of growth, colours of nature, the yellow desert, the red earth, and the blue sky, and the colours of combat, the red of the horses, the red of leather, the red of spilled blood. Above the scene of Seti charging into battle, columns of hieroglyphs described the event. The king's cartouches appear, with the description of Seti as the lord of the two lands, Men Ma'adra, the lord of appearances, Seti, beloved of Amun. And behind the king, a falcon, Horus, flies to protect him, with the caption saying, Horus, the strong of arm, the lord who performs rituals, may all protection, life, stability, and dominion attend on him. Then, above the battle itself, there is a description of Seti as a triumphant warrior and a representative of the gods. The hieroglyphs call him, quote, the good god, the strong-armed, the lord of power who is valiant like Montu, the war god. He who fights and captures in every foreign land, a hero without equal who achieves with his strong arm, so that the two lands know, and so that the entire land shall see. He, Seti, is like Baal as he treads upon the mountains. Dread of Seti has crushed the foreign lands. His name is victorious, his power is strong, and there is none who can withstand him. Seti rides, the Libyans fall, and in the grim wastes of the Sahara, there is only war. The battle continues in scene number two. This time, the conflict is far less chaotic, with a much smaller number of enemies, Seti has dismounted from his chariot, and now he marches forward on foot to enter the fray personally and face his enemy head on. Seti raises a spear with one hand, while with the other he clutches the arm of a Libyan chieftain. The enemy is bending over backwards, terrified at the onslaught of Pharaoh. An arrow pierces the chest of the Libyan. And clearly, he is in his last moments, as Seti prepares to plunge his spear forward, right into his heart. On the ground, another Libyan is lying on his back, submitting, like a dog, to the power of the Egyptians. The pharaoh takes little notice of this enemy. In fact, he steps upon him, bodily, treading his sandals upon the Libyan's head and knees. A spear pierces this enemy, and he raises his hands, feebly, in a gesture of praise. The image is one of total victory. The king is unconcerned about danger, 
he does not need his chariot or his horses, for the Libyans are no longer a threat. Hieroglyphs convey the essence, as they describe Seti, quote, striking down the great ones, or chiefs, of Tehenu, one of the Libyan tribes. Above, additional texts describe Seti as the good god who overthrows those who rebel against him, who smites the tribesfolk and tramples down the Mentiu, or Bedouin, and the distant foreign lands of Libya, Tehenu. He makes a great slaughter among them. Fallen are their chiefs under the feet of the falcon. So shall endure the king, the lord of both lands, the lord of the strong arm, Men Ma'atra, who tramples down the chiefs of the foreign lands of Libya, Tehenu, like the sun god Ra. May all protection, life, stability, and dominion attend on him. As the second scene comes to its end, so does the battle. In the grand tradition of grossly overpowered heroes, Setiv meets, fights, and defeats his enemy within just two scenes. The image of the chariot charge and the single combat in which Seti spears a chieftain, these summarise the whole of the assault. Notably, the Egyptian soldiers, the army, are almost entirely absent from these images. There is one figure who stands in for the collective. Standing behind Seti as he spears the enemy chieftain, there is the small figure of an officer. He carries a fan, keeping his pharaoh cool in the breeze, and he was once described as the troop commander and fan-bearer. So this officer is the only figure from the Egyptian military besides the king himself. That might seem a disservice to the soldiers who did the actual fighting, but we should always remember these scenes are not photographs nor historical documents per se. Instead, they are more like religious art, communicating a philosophical and spiritual truth. In this case, the image of Seti, alone, defeating his enemies, encapsulates the idea of the pharaoh as a warrior, he who is chosen by the gods to defeat disorder, overthrow enemies, and bring peace to Egypt. So, while the army is absent, we can imagine their presence behind the scenes, and we remember that these images on the walls of Karnak Temple convey a much greater idea of the king and the gods. Speaking of the gods, it is now time to return to the Nile Valley. In the second half of Seti's Libyan campaigns, the king marches back to his homeland. The fighting is done, and victory is achieved. But of course, all victory comes from the gods, and now that he has defeated his foes and taken a great deal of plunder, Seti must reward those deities for their divine favour. We continue the story of Seti's victory and the defeat of the Libyans after a short break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like 
Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. His victory complete, Seti now returned to Egypt. In scene number three, we find the king in his chariot once more. This time, the action is directed towards the left, that is the eastern end of the scene. Seti rides his war cart slowly, the horses are trotting rather than charging, and ahead of them, long trains of prisoners march before the pharaoh. The Libyans walk in two ranks or registers. They are well-dressed, wearing long robes and the distinctive feathers in their hair. They also have the distinctive apron or penis sheath hanging down the front of their outfits. The Libyans are prisoners, the figures are bound in distinctive ways. Some have their elbows tied together, some their wrists, and some raise their arms above their heads, twisting and contorting, as if bound tightly in this position. The hieroglyphs describe them simply as, quote, the Great Ones, or Weru, of the foreign hill countries of Libya, Tehenu, those who did not know Egypt, end quote. So the two ranks of prisoners march slowly, bound and tied together, and the hieroglyphs label them as those outside of Ma'at, for they did not know or acknowledge the supremacy, power, and order of Egypt and its divine rulers. The Libyans are outlaws in the literal sense. Once they were beyond the pharaoh's authority, but now Seti's victory has brought them home. Behind the prisoners, Seti rides triumphant. A couple of small details stand out here. The king has replenished his arrows once again, and his quivers are full. He is wearing a scarf or a streamer that hangs down off his crown. And while the Libyan captives march ahead of the pharaoh, there is also a group of prisoners who seem to be attached to the war cart itself. Poking out at either end of the king's chariot, we see the heads of Libyan chieftains. It's not clear if these are supposed to be literal heads that the king has decapitated and hung from his war cart, or if it is a symbolic representation, the idea of captives bundled together under Pharaoh's authority. Behind the king, a fan-bearer marches with a large plumed fan, the fan-bearer himself is not human. He has a human's body, but his shoulders and head have been replaced by an ankh symbol, as if life itself follows behind the king, giving Seti its protection and bestowing the air or breath of life upon him. Finally, the pharaoh's horses trot spiritedly. They are richly decorated, with sun disks attached to their harness. They have plumes capping their heads, and scarves or streamers flutter behind. The colours have mostly disappeared, but tiny traces say that the horses were originally reddish-brown, but they had yellow blankets over their backs. Delightfully, we also get the names of these horses. Just above the chariot team, a band of hieroglyphs records the name. They're not the names of the individual horses, but rather their names as a pair, a pair of war steeds who pull the pharaoh's cart. In this sense, they are called the first great chariot team of his majesty, which is called 
Immen neket, or Amun is victorious. Little details like that, the naming of the horse teams, begin to show up during the reign of Seti I, and they become incredibly common under his successor, Ramesses II. It's one of my favourite details of their military art, and in the future we'll meet these horse teams in greater detail. But for now, we get this nice little reference to a chariot pair called Amun is Brave, a simple phrase made of two words, and I kind of like to imagine that one horse was called Amun and one horse was called Nechet, or Brave. I have no proof of that, but it's a fun idea. Anyway, above the whole scene, bands of hieroglyphs explain what is happening. They describe Seti's return as, quote, The good, or younger god, has returned, after triumphing over the chieftains of every foreign land. They were violating his borders. All foreign lands have become peaceful, for Seti causes them to cease standing upon the battlefield. They forget to take up their bows, and they spend their time in caves, hidden like foxes. The terror of his person, the pharaoh, is in all lands, pervading their hearts, because his father, Amun, has given him bravery and victory. Above the prisoners themselves, the hieroglyphs describe them as, quote, the chieftains of the foreign countries, who did not know Egypt. They were brought away by his person, the king, as living captives from Libya, through the strength of the king's father, Amun. So these prisoners are the top-ranking members of the Libyan society and hierarchy. They are called the Weru Khasut Tehenu, or the Great Ones of the Hill Countries of Libya. Presumably, Seti brought thousands of prisoners back, not just the leaders. But in these scenes on the walls of a temple, it is most appropriate to emphasize the powerful and the privileged. After all, it makes Seti's victory and the tribute he is about to present far more impressive. The pharaoh rides, the Libyans walk, and as they march across the walls of Karnak, the image transitions seamlessly to the next important scene. After the march, or the return from battle, we find Seti and his Libyan captives approaching the divine temples. Now the king is on foot, he stands at the head of the long trains of prisoners, some of whom are bound with ropes around their necks. Those ropes lead directly to the hand of the king as he clutches the bindings and controls his Libyan captives. Seti's appearance has changed subtly. He has discarded his blue crown, often called the war crown, and now he wears a simple wig of tight curled bands. The king wears a long kilt or robe, which seems to be translucent. It wraps around his legs, but the artists have conveyed the outline of his body underneath. So Seti appears to be in more peaceful garb than the previous scenes, but he's still a warrior. On the king's back there is the unmistakable shape of a quiver, and in one hand, the hand with which he clutches the ropes leading to the prisoners, the king also carries his bow. So while he is more relaxed than the battle, Seti is still a man of action. The king's other hand reaches out before him to gesture at a pile of booty that he seems to have gathered together. Standing in front of Seti, we see vases and bags of gold or possibly precious stones. The vases might be metal or ceramics, but they have distinctive shapes, with animal decorations on the heads. We have seen these kind of items before, 
particularly in tribute scenes from the mid-18th dynasty. Vessels like these appear to be products of the Mediterranean coastal communities. They are known from the Levant, up in Syria and southern Anatolia, but also in Crete and mainland Greece. Perhaps these Libyan captives, whom Seti brings back, had been trading with people across the sea from the Mediterranean coast. If that is accurate, then some of the goods that Seti brings back might be products from very distant lands, gathered together as plunder on his campaign. We can only speculate on that. The Libyans might have produced these themselves, or they might be objects of trade, or they might simply be symbolic representations, a kind of gathering of foreign exotica which the Egyptian artists use to show Seti's victory. Whether they are factual or fictional, the collection of goods is distinctive, for they are noticeably foreign in their design, and they show the great extent and distant power of the king, power that reaches into all foreign lands and brings back their wealth for Egypt. Once again, hieroglyphs above these scenes describe what is happening and give the essential details of the king's victory. Above the Libyans, for example, the glyphs describe the scene as, quote, His person, Seti, has returned from the foreign hill countries, his attack having succeeded. He causes the wretched ones to say, What is this? He, Seti, is like a fire that breaks out and no water is brought. The king causes all rebels to utterly cease the boasting of their mouths, for he has taken away the very breath of their noses. Seti takes the opportunity to denigrate his enemies. He describes them as cave dwellers, living in rock holes. They are not settled people who build cities and temples like the Egyptians. They are nomads who make their way through the wilderness and have no permanent home. It's a bit harsh, but then this is the presentation of defeated peoples as captives before the gods. The hieroglyphs on the walls of Karnak are not just a description of Seti's victory and his grandiosity, they are also a religious statement, the supremacy of the Egyptian people and their deities against these dwellers in the West. The presentation continues with another text, quote, The giving of tribute, or that which was brought, by his majesty Seti, to his father Amun-Ra. It consists of silver, gold, lapis lazuli, and turquoise, and every beautiful stone, according to the victory which you, Amun-Ra, gave me, Seti, over every foreign land. And just before the king, hieroglyphs describe, quote, the giving of tribute, or that which was brought, by the good god to his father Amun, which comes from the rebellious chiefs of the foreign lands who did not know Egypt. They come with their tribute on their backs to fill every workshop with slaves, both male and female, according to the victories that you, Amun-Ra, gave Seti over every foreign land. So, the pharaoh Seti gathers his prisoners from the Great Ones, or Weru, of the foreign lands. He presents gifts, spoils or tribute that he has taken away from these lands and brought to the great gods of Egypt. The presentation includes three kinds of booty. First, there is the physical wealth, represented by the ornamental vessels and the descriptions of silver, gold, precious stones and lapis lazuli. Then there are the human resources, described as living captives, semer ankh, which in Egyptology is more often translated as slaves. 
These individuals will probably go to the workshops and farming estates that serve the great temple institutions. In other words, the people of Libya, whom Seti has taken away, will spend the rest of their days working for the Egyptian gods. Finally, we come to the last chapter of Seti's Libyan War. In this scene, we find the gods themselves receiving the tribute of the king. In the second half of the presentation images, we see a great glittering shrine. It appears like a golden box, kind of similar to the shrines found in Tutankhamun's tomb. The top of the shrine is adorned with uraei, or cobras, who wear sun disks on their heads. This is presumably the shrine at the very heart of a great temple. And since these images are carved on the walls of Karnak, we can assume that it is taking place within this very sanctuary. Within this shrine, we find three deities. The first, on the right, is the great Amun-Ra himself. The god sits enthroned upon a plinth or dais. He clutches a was scepter, representing dominion. And there seems to be the tail of a bull hanging off his belt. That is a classic symbol of royal power and strength and virility. And Amun, as a king of the gods, is very much a royal figure. The god's upper body and head have disappeared because the stone in this particular section has broken away. But we can see his crown. Amun wears his distinctive headgear, a sort of flat cap, slightly curved, with two enormous plumes emerging from the top. These plumes, which might be ostrich feathers or possibly palm fronds, are the distinctive symbols of the deity. So although the image has been partially destroyed by time, we still know it is the great Amun-Ra. To the left of Amun, we find the great goddess Mut, the eternal mother, the lady of Isheru, who has her own temple precinct in the vicinity of Karnak, and who rules there as the very archetype of motherhood. Again, the figure of Mut has been partially destroyed because the stone has fallen away, but we can see that she was wearing a long, slightly translucent dress. She is clutching an unk symbol in one hand. She wears a long wig, with a headdress in the form of a golden vulture. That vulture is a short version of her name, for the hieroglyph of a vulture is part of the word moot, meaning mother. Finally, on top of that headdress, moot wears the double crown. The white crown of southern Egypt, and the red crown of northern Egypt. This encapsulates her royalty. She, like her partner Amun, is a ruling figure, a being of supreme authority within the cosmos and on earth. Finally, the third figure is this son of Mut and Amun. His name is Khonsu, and he is the lord of the moon. Khonsu stands just beside his mother. He is wrapped in a white shroud, or possibly bandages, that kind of make him look like a mummy. He has a long braid of hair running down the side of his head which represents his youth. Because he is the son of Mut and Amun, he is eternally a childlike figure beside his great parents. On top of his head, Khonsu wears a distinctive piece. It is a crescent moon that curves upwards to either side, and between the horns of this moon there is a full disc, representing the full moon. So Khonsu has quite an elaborate appearance. The three gods are within their shrine, 
which might be the temple of Karnak itself, or might be the literal shrines at the heart of their sanctuaries. If you choose to read the scene literally, you might imagine Seti I bringing thousands of Libyan captives to the outer gates of Karnak, and then proceeding into the temple to offer the treasures and booty, and the metaphorical service of those captives, to the great gods within. Or you can read it metaphorically, as a general summary of the king's piety and the wealth he bestowed on the temples. Either way, it is an important scene. Arguably the most important scene in the entire battle narrative. Seti I can go forth and slaughter and conquer all he likes, but his victories are not just his, they are the result of the gods' blessings. And so, at the conclusion of his victory, Seti must return to Egypt to honour those gods with the tribute they deserve. Of course, the gods are grateful for their son's generosity. And in the final part of this scene, we have three speeches, one from each of the deities involved, who receive the tribute and plunder that Seti has brought, and bestow their thanks and blessings upon the king. The first to speak is Amun-Ra, who says to King Seti, quote, O son of my body, whom I love, men ma'at-ra, Seti the first. My heart is glad through love of you, and I rejoice at the sight of your, Seti's, beauty. I set the war cry of your person upon every foreign land. Your mace is upon the heads of their chiefs, and they come to you in unison, to the beloved or cultivated land, that is, Tameri or Egypt, and they carry all their goods as tribute upon their backs. End quote. So, Seti gives these gifts, material and human, to Amun-Ra, and Amun-Ra basically praises himself. The god speaks about how he is glad to see Seti, and how, through his power, he has brought all foreign lands in tribute to Egypt. If you treat the god like a person, it sounds kind of self-aggrandizing, but from a political and religious perspective, it is an important message. Seti I is emphasizing the fundamental link between the king of the gods and the king of the earth. He, Seti, achieves his victories because the gods are behind him. His rule, his conquests, are divinely ordained. So Amun gives victory, and he communicates that through his speech. One excellent detail is the idea that Amun-Ra spreads the pharaoh's war cry, or hem-hem, across every foreign land. Of course, this is just a short way of saying that Seti is victorious against every enemy. When he charges into battle, and shouts his cry against the foe, it is as if Amun-Ra himself is bellowing at his back, and the enemy cannot resist such force. But if you wanted to imagine Amun's speech a little bit more dramatically, you might envision Amun-Ra causing thunder to crackle through the sky, or even the literal roar of a god. Not to be outdone, the goddess Mut also speaks, and she gives Seti an incredibly valuable gift. As Amun-Ra gives Seti victory in battle, Mut says the following, quote, I, Mut, have given you eternity as the king of the two lands, and you, Seti, have arisen like Ra. End quote. 
compared to the proclamation of Amun, Moot's speech is much shorter, but arguably even more valuable. Amun-Ra gives Seti victory on earth, temporal power over foreign lands. But Moot, Moot gives Seti eternity. She gives him everlasting power as a ruler, and she connects him with the eternal cycle of the sun. It is a powerful gift, although slightly generic, one worth its weight in gold. Finally, Konsu's speech is also relatively short, but it has its own power. The god of the moon, son of Amun and Mut, says the following, quote, I, Konsu, have given you, Seti, victory against the south and victory against the north. May all life, stability, and dominion attend Seti like Ra, end quote. Konsu follows his father Amun, and he gives Seti victory in this world. He references victory against the south and the north, which presumably refers to the southern foreign countries, that is Nubia or modern Sudan, and the northern foreign countries, that is Canaan, Lebanon, Syria, and the Hittites. It's interesting that neither Konsu nor Amun reference Libya, where Seti is actually coming from, but these texts are to some degree formulaic, they are part and parcel of the religious language of the time. So the gods bestow their blessings upon Seti, their gratitude for his conquests and his tribute, and they ensure that he will be ever victorious, ever ruling, and eternal like the sun. Seti made his attack, and the armies, or the people of Libya, fell in battle against the pharaoh's onslaught. Seti then gathered up prisoners, high and low, and brought them back to Egypt, where he presented them to the great gods, including Amun, Mut, and Konsu. It seems a reasonably tidy narrative that Seti tells from beginning to end. And yet, through all of this, there is a nagging question. Who are these Libyans exactly? Where did they come from? What was their society? And what was their relationship with the people of Egypt? The Libyans, quote-unquote, are an extremely difficult group to pin down. The first problem is that 99% of our sources for the ancient Libyans come from the Egyptians. Monuments and texts that describe or depict the Libyans are the major source of information about these ancient people. Unfortunately, the ancient Libyans, in their distinctive tribes or sub-communities, have not yet been properly or fully explored archaeologically. The problem is relatively simple. The Libyans seem to have lived along the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, the western deserts, and various trails or regions between them, across the Great Sahara. That is a vast area for exploration, and over the past hundred plus years, this particular part of the world has not been the safest area for exploration and archaeology. Egyptologists have often wondered about the ancient Libyan peoples, but the opportunities for actually locating and excavating their ancient settlements or tracks, those have been few and far between. With that in mind, I can only describe the Libyans from the Egyptian perspective, the way they depicted and described them in their hieroglyphs and images. It is almost certainly a grossly biased and distorted view of these ancient peoples. But for now, it's pretty much the only information we have. 
So take what I'm about to say with a grain of historical salt. It could change significantly with future excavation. The people whom we call Egyptians, the ones living in the Nile Valley and the Delta, seem to have known about the Westerners, or Libyans, from a very early period. This is completely expected. For one thing, the ancient trade routes that crossed northern Africa, the Sahara, and the eastern coast of the continent brought many cultures into contact across the millennia. For another, the early travels and diffusion of humanity itself would have followed paths through these different regions. So, the Egyptians were always aware of the people living to their west, the folks whom we might call Libyans. And from that early period, we do get occasional references in art and writing to these western groups. The first thing to know is that references to the Libyans on royal monuments, monuments commissioned by the kings of Egypt, tend to have a military or hostile character. And this goes right back to the early periods. From the Old Kingdom, around 2400 BCE, we start to get references in royal art and texts to the Libyans as an outside group. Kings like Sahura, or Sahure, commissioned scenes that showed them smiting or slaughtering chieftains of the Libyan peoples. It's not clear if these images are symbolic, representing the king's power over all lands, or if they reflect genuine events and wars. Either way, they reveal the essential priorities of the Egyptian kings. They are the representatives of Ma'at and the gods, and so anybody who is outside their authority must be attacked and destroyed. Moving forward though, the picture starts to get more nuanced. During the 18th dynasty, say 1500 BCE and later, we start to find Libyans appearing in Egyptian art. This time, they are not depicted as enemies. Instead, they appear as soldiers. During the 18th dynasty, particularly the reigns of Akhenaten and Tutankhamun, we find images of Libyans among the soldiers of Egypt. In the city of Amana, built for Akhenaten, some of the non-royal tombs belonging to courtiers and officials show Libyan troops among the soldiers of Egypt. They wear their distinctive feathers in their hair, and they run alongside troops of other ethnicities and backgrounds. It's not clear if these are literal scenes, representing a cosmopolitan army in service to the pharaoh, or if they are more symbolic, communicating the idea that Akhenaten rules over all lands and peoples, and they serve him happily. Nonetheless, their appearance in this art is quite interesting, and it suggests that attitudes and relationships had changed to some degree. We find similar images in the reign of Tutankhamun. In the days of the boy king, royal artists decorated the temple of Luxor with images of the Opet festival. That is the annual celebration for the gods of Luxor temple, and one that involved grand processions and parades. As part of these images, we find Libyan soldiers celebrating and dancing within the royal procession. Again, it's not clear if we should take this literally. The Libyans appear alongside other groups, like Nubians, and the images might simply represent the supreme earthly power of the pharaoh. But, if they are accurate, if they do literally represent what was happening, 
then it seems like Libyan soldiers were serving in the Egyptian army. This would make sense. If the Libyan groups were primarily nomadic, hunters rather than settlers, then their soldiers may have been particularly skilled, both in movement and in combat. From the perspective of the Egyptian pharaohs and their generals, such warriors might be a useful asset to include in the army. Again, that is speculation. We do not know if these scenes are symbolic, or if we should take them literally. But either way, it's worth pointing out that the festival of Opet was a grand and important affair. The appearance of Libyan soldiers, and Nubians, suggests that they may have been a prominent, even respectable part of the armed forces. So that is the situation before Seti I. From a purely royal perspective, the iconography tends to emphasize war and conflict. In the early periods, royal scenes show smiting and slaughtering of Libyans. But in the 18th dynasty, we start to find Libyans, among others, as part of Egypt's armed forces. Then, Seti I comes along, and his war reliefs at Karnak return to the old image of conflict and destruction between the Egyptians and Libyans. Seti's war reliefs, and Egyptian battle scenes generally, depict the Libyans as chaotic. When the pharaoh attacks, they are completely incapable of resisting him, and they tumble over themselves in confusion and disorder. It's an extremely negative portrayal of these people, but it fits within the Egyptian religious and ideological context. Battle scenes, especially those involving the pharaoh, are not meant to be a photograph of what actually happened. They are supposed to express the idea of Egyptian supremacy, of the pharaoh's strength and divine favor. From that perspective, any battle scene that Egyptian artists create tends to portray things as order versus chaos, the pharaoh versus enemies. That's a problem for art historians and scholars interested in the Libyans as a people. We can study these images to get an idea of costumes, how the Libyans might have dressed and armed themselves, but it tells us nothing about how they were organized or how skilled their warriors may have been. Researchers have tried to uncover certain details. In the 1990s, a scholar named David O'Connor did an extensive study of the Libyans as they appear in the New Kingdom Art and Records. O'Connor's conclusions were preliminary because the evidence itself is so thin and so exclusively Egyptian in its point of view. But at the very least, O'Connor was able to argue that the Libyans probably had their own sophisticated military organization. They may not have been capable of withstanding a full pharaonic army, well-armed, well-trained, and experienced in battle, but that did not necessarily mean they were ineffective or weak as soldiers. It's a fair argument, and it is supported by the Egyptian evidence. As we mentioned earlier, we find Libyans serving in the armies of the 18th dynasty. Assuming those scenes are accurate to life, we can at least assume the Libyans had some degree of military and martial skill. After all, why would the pharaohs employ them if they were not good warriors? That is awfully tentative and preliminary, but sadly, that's the best we can say based on the Egyptian evidence. The pharaohs, like Seti I, have explicit reasons for showing their enemies as weak and disordered. It helps to reinforce the natural cosmic order in which the Egyptians believed, 
but the Libyans themselves get the short end of that depiction. Whatever military, social, or cultural sophistication they may have had, much of that has disappeared, and what survives is the distorted pharaonic image. So, around 1300 BCE, Seti commissioned a series of images that showed him attacking and easily defeating a Libyan army. He brought the peoples of this region back to Egypt to work as slaves in the great temples. It is a classic image of pharaonic victory, of supremacy over their enemies, and the power of the Egyptian gods. Curiously, the story after the reign of Seti I would actually continue in that vein. Seti's Libyan war is not an isolated incident. In fact, it seems to merely be the prologue in a story that would unfold over the next 120 years. From 1300 BCE down to 1180, there seems to be an increasing level of conflict between Libyan tribes and the Egyptian state. In the days of Seti's successors, like Ramesses II, Merneptah, and Ramesses III, we have an abundance of royal records that show large-scale conflicts between the Egyptian monarchs and the Libyans. The causes of these conflicts, and even their exact nature, are still a matter of historical debate, and we'll explore them fully at the appropriate times. But for now, it's interesting to note that Around 1300 BCE, King Seti I appears to lead a punitive raid or campaign into Libyan lands. He takes captives and plunder and brings them back to Egypt. But while Seti celebrated this campaign as a great victory, it was far from the end of the story. In fact, it may only be the first part in an unfolding saga. In 1300 BCE, the pharaoh of Egypt, Men Ma'adra, led a campaign to the west. The king depicted this campaign on the walls of Karnak Temple, where, in grand images, we find Seti charging into the enemy army. He routed the Libyan warriors and slaughtered their chieftains. Then, the king gathered up prisoners and plunder and brought it back to Egypt. The Libyan peoples, whom Seti took, went to the great temples, there to work as slaves on behalf of the great gods. Viewing these images in their context, as expressions of Egypt's religious and military power, we find the Libyans as a defeated, put-upon people. The way Seti depicts them, he marched into this land that already had very little, and he took away everything that he found. From that perspective, one might say that Seti found Libya at level zero. Following his attack, it was down to minus one.
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Next time, we return to the Nile Valley. The wars of Seti I are coming to their end, and the king has some important business to deal with at home. Most immediately, there is a lingering religious question around this king's identity and his role as a pharaoh. As a king of Egypt, Seti is the incarnation of Horus and the son of Osiris. But as a human, Seti is named after a deity whose relationship to Horus and Osiris is ever so slightly complicated. How did Seti, whose name invokes the god Seth, reconcile his identity with his role as a king of Egypt? We explore that in the next episode. Before I go, I would like to thank the supporters of this episode. That is, all of you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. I would like to give a special shout-out to The Priests, my top-tier supporters on Patreon.com. As a thank you for their generous support, The Priests get a special personalised shout-out at the end of every episode. In January of 2024, when this episode was recorded, The Priests were Veronica, Ashley, Nadin, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, and Linda. Folks, you are all too generous, and hopefully your homes will remain safe from invasion or desecration by rampaging pharaohs. May the great gods bless you and your families, and give you an eternity like Ra. Thank you for your generosity. And thank you to everyone who supports the show, either on Patreon as a subscriber, or in the general public as a listener. I am grateful to all of you, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs>